Makoto, everyone. Um, as Alan said, my name's Andrew, and it's a, it's a real privilege to be here. Um, memories of uh, memories of good times. Everyone has their uh, own repository of kind of special memories that stick out as they kind of think back through maybe childhood or uh, adult life. Some real kind of pinpoints that that stick in the mind, and uh, in in our family we have those. Uh, and sometimes they revolve around a bunch of photographs and it's good to have them. Um, this was a, a memory of, of us going for a walk up a hill, uh, which in and of itself doesn't sound uh, too special, but uh, on this day we were in Scotland, uh, we were with some really good friends, uh, and we were just enjoying their company, enjoying the time off, uh, and walking in a, in a, in a, uh, up a nice hill. Um, as we walked up the hill, we came across... Um, some wild raspberries uh, and the kids were, this was about 10 years ago and their kids and our kids were um, very enthusiastic about these raspberries and we spent quite a bit of time there rummaging through the bushes and picking as many of them as, as, uh, as, as we could. Um, and this photo, um, which I just confessed to Tom I was going to show, uh, and I told him that he'd be embarrassed about it but, but nobody else would be. Um, this really sticks out in our mind. I, I love it. I, I love the kind of the, the look on Tom's face there, but I also love the fact that he's cradling this precious cargo in his hands. Um, and this photo, to me, has always been a photo of, of precious cargo. Um, and in many ways, that's what I feel about the passage that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm going to be uh, opening up John chapter 3. Um, and this is a part of the Bible which is so popular and so well-known and so loved. It is precious cargo. Uh, and so I approach it with just a little bit uh, more trepidation than I would uh, at other times because uh, if there's ever a time uh, to do something well, it's, it's to do it with the best, of, uh, you know, the, the best of the resources which is in front of you. So we're going to um, uh, have a look uh, today um, at the next in the series uh, to do with the good news, and we're going to be reading from John chapter 3. Now, the passage is John chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, and it's a, quite a long passage, and how I'd like to break this morning up is to divide the passage into three roughly equal groups and then think about each uh, uh, part of that uh, in, in turn. So before we, uh, before we read, um, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we acknowledge your presence with us today. Um, we love the fact that we have a written account of the, the time that you were here on earth. We thank you for your faithful servant John who wrote uh, and we can read today and we can learn and we can come to know more of you and I pray that that would be our experience today that um, regardless of our, of our state of faith, of, uh, of our aging years, um, of our previous understanding that you would lead us to something new and something fresh today. Um, we pray this in your own great name. Amen. Right, so let's read. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus asked, How can someone be born when they're old? 
Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a real guy, and we know that because of how how John has described him. He's described him in three ways. He gives us his name, he gives us his official religious title, and the group that he belonged to. He was a Pharisee and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. To be a Pharisee was someone who was so invested in the Hebrew scriptures, so, uh, um, so devoted to it, that they knew it to the nth degree. They could, they could comb through it finely and pick up on the smallest detail. They knew it inside out, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. This was the man who came to see Jesus. Now, much has been made of the reason as to why he may have come at night. Um, And it really is all speculative, but it's interesting to think about. One of the possibilities is that maybe he felt a little bit embarrassed that he, a teacher of the law and a Pharisee, was actually going to go and see Jesus. Perhaps he didn't want other people to know about it, so he'd go under the cloak of darkness. Um, Another possibility is that um, because Jesus was so popular and he had crowds around him so much, Uh, that Nicodemus actually just wanted some time alone with Jesus and he figured the best time to get that would be at night. Uh, Who knows for sure, but it's interesting to think about. One thing uh, that's really struck me here is that this whole conversation has not come out of a question from Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and basically makes a statement. And it's a statement based on his observations. And his observations are this. We, Jesus, we, being the other Pharisees and the, and the rulers of the Jewish uh, uh, ruling council, we, we know that you're from God because you could not be doing the things that you were doing if you weren't from God. So there's an acknowledgement, but there's no question. There's no, so what's up? There's no, give me more details. Can you please explain? He just makes a statement. Uh, and then Jesus uh, gives a reply to this statement Uh, uh, and opens the conversation in a way that I'm certain that Nicodemus was not expecting. Uh, And this is uh, a thing that we see about Jesus that I really uh, appreciate, is that whoever he is talking to, his answer is totally and and utterly appropriate to the the educational background, to the social status, to uh, to the understanding of the person who's answered the question. And so it is with Nicodemus. Because when we look at uh, the words uh, on the page in front of us, we read the answer and we think, oh, I don't know that Jesus is being really clear here. First of all, he says you have to be born again. But then we've gone into some funny places. Being born of water, spirit, wind blowing, we don't know where it's coming from. What is all of this about? Well, that might be our response to it. But Nicodemus uh, would have recognised this material. Nicodemus would have known straight away that when Jesus started using these words and these phrases, he was drawing directly from the prophet Ezekiel. 
So the prophet Ezekiel was a man who was sent by God to speak to the nation of Israel at a time when the nation of Israel was in deep distress. They had been exiled from their land. They'd been taken away to Babylon. So not only had the promises of God seemed to have come to nothing, but they were far away from the place that they felt that they belonged. And the prophet Ezekiel was sent into that environment. And in chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel, um, we read of two uh, kind of prophetic occurrences that match directly what Jesus uh, said to Nicodemus here. The first of these, um, from Ezekiel chapter 36, he says to the nation of Israel, I know you're far from the land which you feel that you should belong to. I know you feel dispossessed. Uh, I know you feel like I've abandoned you. But, and this is the prophecy, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. These are beautiful words. Can you imagine the, the hope that this would have engendered in the nation of Israel in the situation that they were in? But even more dramatically, in Ezekiel chapter 37, um, we find this uh, dream sequence that Ezekiel experienced where uh, he had a vision and in front of him he saw a valley, a desert valley, and heaped up in the middle of this desert valley was a pile of bones. Not skeletons that were formed together, but disarticulated bones, just a big pile of them. Uh, and God, spoke, God showed Ezekiel this pile of bones and says... And, and, and God said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, speak to those bones. Tell them to come to life. And in front of Ezekiel's eyes, this is the image, this is the vision that he had, the bones started rattling. Ezekiel 37 uses that word, and I just, I, I, I find it hard to get past the, that image of this pile of bones that start kind of rattling and then start forming um, a skeleton. And then all of a sudden, tendons and muscles and skin appear and you get the formation of, of a human. And then from the four corners of the earth, a wind blows. And the wind comes and animates those bodies. And what started out as a pile of disarticulated bones became a living, breathing person, group of people. In fact, that group of people formed together to become a great army. Ezekiel 37, dry bones... Hear the word of the Lord. I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. I'm going to open your graves. I'm going to bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. So now when you read Ezekiel 36 and 37, and you hear Jesus talking about you've got to be born again, and you think of this vocabulary of I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take my spirit and put my spirit in you. I'm going to take you, you dead pile of bones, and I'm going to form a body in you, and I'm going to make you alive with my breath, and you're going to become an army. It sounds an awful lot like being born again, doesn't it? That's good news. The good news that Jesus offers 
is so significant, it's akin to having a heart of stone taken out of our chests and a heart of flesh being put in. It's so dramatic that it's compared to a pile of dead, dry bones being transformed into an alive army ready to fight. That's good news. Let's keep reading, John chapter 3. Nicodemus asked, how can this be? Jesus said, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So here Jesus is dipping again into the lexicon of Israel's history to describe the very purpose that he was sent to earth from, uh, sent to earth for. Uh, and he uses this image of Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. Now, there's a bunch of other things in that little paragraph there that we're not going to look at today. But the key image is that one of Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness. <clears throat> And Nicodemus will have known for sure that Jesus was referring to an event in the history of the nation of Israel that is recorded in Numbers chapter 21. This is at a period of time where having been liberated from slavery, uh, from slavery to the Egyptians, the nation of Israel uh, were in the desert. And although the journey through the desert should have only taken 10 days to get to the promised land, because of their grumbling and complaining and wrestling with God, it ended up taking 40 years. It was a very tortuous journey. And during that journey, Numbers chapter 21 happened. The people grew impatient, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up? out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and lived. So when I read this story, I see a few things. First of all, I see a people who are grumpy and discontent. Despite God's provision for them time and time and time again, they complain against God, they go against God's will, they complain and they moan, and they bring condemnation on themselves and it comes in the form of a snake. 
a snake which bites them and takes their life. But when those people recognize that they have done wrong and they bring themselves to God and they say to God, I've done the wrong thing in complaining uh, against you, God, out of his love and out of his generosity, provides a means to save them. And the means that uh, that he provided in this story uh, was for Moses to create a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And if the people of Israel trusted God enough, if they trusted him uh, that when he told them to look on the snake that they would live, if they trusted that what he was saying was correct and they did it, they did live. And this is the key image that Jesus is using to describe his, his very purpose. God's fundamental posture towards us is love. His posture towards the Israelites in the desert was love. His posture towards us in the person of Jesus is love. His fundamental posture towards us now is love. God was so moved by his love that he gave a very substantial gift, his own son. And if we are to accept the gift that's offered, then we are led to the path of life. If we refuse the gift, then it's darkness and death. We'll continue to read. John 3, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, I don't know how you feel about a passage like this, but when I've just read something like John 3.16 and I've thought about the fact that God's fundamental posture towards me is love, what I would then like to go on and read is more thinking about God's love, more description, more meditation, more encouragement. But in fact, John doesn't do that. He seems to take almost an opposite direction and he talks about all of this stuff. He talks about... A condemnation, he talks about darkness, he talk, talks about exposure. Let's be very clear though about what the passage is saying. Jesus came as a gift of love, he did not come to bring condemnation. Jesus didn't need to come, doesn't need to come to bring condemnation because we have brought that on ourselves. We are all. Adam and Eve in the garden. We are all the nation of Israel in the desert. We've all disobeyed God. We've all distrusted God. And in his place, we've elevated ourselves, our own self-importance, our own self-worth, our own self-will. It's the path of darkness and death. Jesus 
The next thing from this passage is the description of Jesus is like light in a dark place. The thing about light shining in a dark place is that it, it, it exposes. Everything is laid bare when the lights are switched on. Uh, and when we are faced with the possibility of having light uh, shining on our lives and having our lives exposed and laid open, we retreat because it's an uncomfortable place to be. And And in my mind, there's two possible responses that we can have um, when we uh, are subject to the exposure that light brings. First of all is the possibility that we actually want to have nothing to do with it whatsoever. I'm quite happy with my life right now. I don't need an outside influence shining in and showing me and telling me that I'm wrong. Leave me alone and I'll carry on doing the very thing that I've done all my life. You know, this is a real strong human tendency, isn't it? That once in our mind we've made a decision and we put in place a series of actions that are consistent with that decision, we live our lives justifying that set of decisions. The very thing that we don't want to happen is to be proved wrong. So one possible response to the light being shined is that we want to have nothing to do with it, we turn our back on the light. We turn our back on the light. The other possibility is that we have some awareness that our life is being lived in the dark. We are aware of the light and we're attracted to it, but actually what we sense when we approach the light is um, some emotions or some responses that are uncomfortable. We might have a response of fear. We might experience shame or guilt because everything which is in me, which has made up me, which is my repository of experiences and, and everything to do with my life, everything's on show. And I don't like the fact that light shines on me like that. Uh, John Bunyan uh, was a Puritan from the 1600s. He was, he's most well known for writing The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, he wrote some other books as well. Uh, and in one of his other books, he wrote um, uh, an interaction, an imagined interaction that a person who is feeling uncomfortable about themselves might have with Jesus. Um, I'm only going to read you one side of the conversation. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand, I've, I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that's hidden from everyone. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. But I, I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. The burden is heavy and it's heavier all the time. It's too much to bear. You don't get it. My, my offences aren't directed towards others. They're against you. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me.
I've been reading a book recently called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, and this is a quote that I came across just within the last week. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. God's fundamental posture towards us is one of love. And when his light shines on our lives and we are drawn to that light, we don't find a response of condemnation, we find a response of love. I'm going to read to you uh, that, uh, that series of conversations from John Bunyan again, but now with the replies that we imagine Jesus would make. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only person, that's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offences aren't directed towards others, they're against you. Then I, am the most, then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the good news. God's fundamental posture towards us is one of love. And he was so moved by his love that he gave a very substantial gift, his own son. When we accept the gift, we walk into life. If we refuse the gift, it's the path of darkness and death. Um, This good news is something that we all need to have some kind of response to. Uh, And I'd like to invite uh, a time now where we can do that, where we can respond. I'd just like to ask you to uh, close your eyes. Um, And just in the quietness of this moment, we'll, we'll think about the life that Jesus offers us. Now, it may be that having lived life on your own terms with yourself at the, at the centre of all of your decision making has been the way that you've lived your life all your life and you've resolutely stood firm by that and resisted any attempts, any attempts by anyone to tell you any different. But maybe just like a breeze blowing in from a corner that you've never noticed before, you're starting to think about that differently. 
God's fundamental posture towards you is love. It may be that you're drawn to the light. But those feelings of fear or guilt or shame feel like a major break. They're holding you back from your progress towards the light. To you, Jesus would say, I have not come to bring condemnation. I have come as an act of love. Jesus, we love that you are love, and that is what it is that you, that's what you offer to us. Pure, uh, unbridled, unconditional, non-condemning love. We thank you for the new life that that brings. We thank you that that new life comes from you, and the contrast of being born and then being born again. When we accept the life that you bring is as vast as a pile of bones to an army of people. Jesus, you are the only one who can do this for us. Um, And we thank you that you have provided for that. We look to you and we trust you. If this notion of trusting in Jesus is something which is new or something which used to be a part of your life but maybe now is just reawakening, then don't uh, lose the opportunity to engage with Jesus and experience the warmth of his love. If you would like me to pray with you during this next song, at the end of the service, uh, I'll be uh, sitting up here in the front and I would love to do that. I know others in the church would love to do that as well. God's fundamental posture towards us is love. It's the very best of news.